Welcome to the Unfiltered Friends podcast, where we humanize your favorite creators through their personal stories and then learn something from them. I hope you feel inspired by today's guest, and if you do, share it with someone who needs it. So without further ado, here is Unfiltered Friends. Hello, Unfiltered Friends. I am very excited to bring on this person. Um, I don't, uh, I haven't told them this yet, and they're about to hear it now. Um, Pretty much every single post that I have seen um, brought me to tears for various reasons. So we'll get into what that is. But I want to bring in Diane. How are you doing? I am so well. I'm so excited yeah. to talk to you today. They're happy tears, I promise oh, you. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll get into all of that stuff. And I know that you've had other people probably describe that sort of effect that your content has had on them if you could describe like what it is that you do because it it, there seems to be a theme Mm -hmm. but also it's just who you are yeah how would you describe what your content is um i think it's i you know something i'm having a hard time with it i i think what i usually say is when i started doing this when I started doing this, I thought, oh, this will be fun. I'll do vintage fashion tips and how to dress vintage, you know, as a chubby person and all that kind of stuff and show all my vintage things. But what I've not, and people love that, but what I found that really resonated with people was the kindness that they felt mm. that they were receiving kindness. And I mean, what, speaking of tears, what brought me to tears many times, especially at the beginning, were people commenting and saying, you know, nobody's ever talked to me like this. I didn't know people really spoke like this. I thought it was just like something in the movies or whatever, you know, and um, that just touched me so deeply. And I... I just thought, you know, there's not a lot I can do, right? I'm just this chubby little old lady, you know, weird lady who lives in upstate New York and, and there's not a lot I can do, but I can do kindness, you know? Yeah. I can That's do free. That. So. Kindness is free. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, were you always this way? Like, were you, like when people say like mm-hmm. people aren't kind like this and it's true. And mm-hmm. it's actually something that I have worked on within myself is vocalizing the kind things that I think, but don't say, I think a lot of us think wonderful things, but everyone is kind of uh, suspicious of vulnerable when, when you're being kind, you are, it's opens you up for attack in a certain way or for judgment more, more for Mm -hmm. judgment. Like people can be like, Oh, you're, you know, whatever, but it's, you know, it's being willing to be vulnerable and everything. I don't, I think I've always had the core quality, but I think that um, in uh, my middle adulthood, I went through, you know, it was very difficult, many, many, many very difficult years. And I think coming through that sort of refined it and made me decide what was important to me, you know, mm-hmm. and um you know, and just raising my children was transformative to me because I... How so? Um, <clears throat> my parents were wonderful. I don't want to uh, disrespect them in any ways. But their goals were always, always, always to make us as independent as possible. And to, you know, they didn't, they didn't want to coddle us. They wanted us to be, you know disciplined and all this kind of stuff. And what that left me feeling much of the time was that I had no one. I had nobody, you know? Mm -hmm. And so now I'm going to start crying. And so when I had children, the main thing I wanted to instill in them is that I was on their team. I loved them passionately. You know, like one thing I always told my children is, Everything you've ever done in your life, every awful bad thing that you're going to do in your life, I've already forgiven you for. And there's mm-hmm. nothing, you know, that will ever change that. And so, and of course, with children, just saying something isn't enough. You have to constantly live it and express it. And so I think that's what was um, just living in that lane. You know, living in that lane where you're constantly building up and encouraging and nurturing 
that was transformative for me. I think. Mm-hmm. But that was a, you understand that's a choice though. You made that choice. Yeah. Was there any difficulty in that choice? You were raised in a way where you were supposed Mm -hmm. to be this like insular thing. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of took a different route Mm -hmm. with the way that you raised your children. You Mm -hmm. have multiple children, I'm assuming. I have five children. Five children. Yeah. Um, How old are they? Um, My youngest is 24 and my oldest is... 37. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what what shifted within you to move in a direction different from the way that you were parented? I, I honestly don't even know if it was a choice. It was just what I had to do. You know, like, and I can remember getting into discussions with my mom, like when, with my children, she was very much, we were raised very much. You put them in bed. It doesn't matter if they cry for hours, that's Mm -hmm. their bedtime. That's where they stay. You don't, you know? And so, uh, having to, um, you know, that was, I was sharing sleep and doing, I was doing the, um, what is it called now? I can't remember, like the kind parenting. Um, gentle parenting. Gentle parenting. I was doing that, and um, and people people did not understand why I was doing people, it. People still don't yeah. understand. So yeah. d- tell me about it. Tell me about – because that's, that's – you're uh, a leader in that because mm-hmm. gentle parenting is something that I just started to hear about. Mm-hmm. Um, what – what in your book, how did you get involved with gentle parenting and like, why was that your choice and what were people's reactions to that? Um, I just wanted to do the best for my kids. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I wanted them to know that they were not alone, you know, because I felt so alone for so many years and I wanted them to know they were not alone, you know? So, and I also like, uh, I'm trying to think of some examples. Like I can remember one when Noah, who's my youngest, he's 24, And, um, I homeschooled them and we were at like a homeschool co-op event or whatever. And I had packed all their lunches for them and he was sitting at the table, um, you know, getting ready to eat his lunch. So I went to his table, I got his lunch from him. I brought it into the kitchen of the place where we were at and was warming it up for him. And like several of the other women and the other moms were like, why are you doing that? He should be, if he wants his lunch warm, he can come in here and warm it. You know, why are you doing that? And I was like, because, you know, he's with his friends. I wanted to enjoy himself. I can do this, you know? And so I did that for him and they're like, Oh, he's going to take advantage of you. But the other side of the coin is that child, you know, when he was eight, nine, 10 years old was of his own accord mowing all the lawns, doing all the yard work, all that kind of stuff, because my feeling is, my experience is, if you pour into your children and you give to them and you model giving, they long to give back, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, so I don't know. (laughs) What do you think makes people so resistant to showing up for their kids like that? Like with the reaction that you got at the school? What do I they what do they people, feel like is going to happen if they people if they are don't so worried people are so worried that their children are going to be manipulating them or taking advantage of them their children though that's like yeah. a, it's a kind of a but they, you know what honey listen you when you <laughs> hear about sleep sleep training and stuff like that when you read about that and read about people's impressions of it what is the big thing they're saying oh your kid is manipulating you you know, when it's in reality, it's a four or five, six month old baby who's just scared of being alone or just wants to know that they're safe. You know, they're yeah. not manipulating. But I think so, people are very afraid of that, you know, and yeah. very. I think and, and I, this I do understand. I think they're very afraid of having out of control kids. So they want to, you know, uh, impress their discipline standards on them. So they their kids are going to be well-behaved and in control. Mm-hmm. Would you say that's what you, that was that what you f- faced when you were being raised? Definitely. Similar attitude. Yes, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a different time. I mean, I was a, I was born in the fifties. So, yeah. you know, it was a very different time, but yeah. Yeah. You're, so you're, 
you're born in the 50s. A lot of the stuff that you have on your channel is 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 vintage like even before your time yeah um what is the affinity i mean you even the way that you're dressed right now yeah. it's like you're it's like a time capsule from a, a time long gone yeah what is it about dressing and expressing and buying things and showing people things from those eras like what eras are your favorite first? my favorite eras are the 1930s and then like wartime era world war ii era is not my favorite era although it's very popular you know what i mean but i love it i do love it but my favorites are 1930s and like late 40s very early 50s those are my like sweet spot yeah. you know so why ah uh, you know something i you're asking me all these hard questions. I don't know the answer. Welcome to a, a conversation <laughs> with me because I want to know you and I want other people to know and understand you as well. Not that you're hard to understand, but I'm sure you get questions. People are like, what is going on with this lady? You know, why is she dressed like this? You know, because people, people, people have commented and, and messaged me and things and they think this is what they call a hobby house. Like this is like I have another actual normal you don't house live, that there. I live there, and this is just like my hobby, you know. <laughs> <laughs> like we don't got that kind of money, no, okay? Like, I don't. I'm sorry. So, what is it about those eras that speaks to you? I think. Okay, I'm really going to try. I think the look, the this whole look, is very much how um, my own grandmother, my nana, was. You know, and she was an amazing woman. She was um, a single mom. She was a widow and, um, you know, raised her, raised her girls alone and had to work really hard. And, and then she was, when I was around uh, in my, um, oh, maybe f six, seven, eight years old, she remarried and mm. to an amazing, wonderful man who they dated when she was a teenager and he came back and found her and all this other kind of stuff. But I think that that's kind of my look. And because when she was so kind, you know, and she was so, um, uh, she was so talented and she was so courageous, you know? Yeah. And, um, and even as a small child, I could tell there was some part of me that could tell of the heartache that she had lived, you know, and um, she lived, a, she lived very, very hard life. And, um, but she was so gracious, you know, she was a New England lady and she was so gracious and, you know, and I think. Um, the thing that draws me to a lot of the, the like household articles and things like that is, um, you know, like I have a lot of handmade, um, uh, hand embroidered, hand sewed things and stuff like that. And looking at those and thinking that back in that era, you know, a, like a mom, her daughter's getting married. And so here's my cat. <laughs> <laughs> it would not, if you have a cat, they will end up in the video at some point in time. It's he, he loves being, people always think I've trained him or something because whenever I'm <laughs> filming, he comes right out. So he's always in the video. So anyways, <laughs> um, you think somebody like one of my sets of dish towels, my days of the week dish towels, for example, they would have taken, oh, oh my gracious, maybe a hundred hours to, to embroider and make. Mm -hmm. And somebody did that for just a simple for dish towels. Do you know what wow. I mean? Wow. Yeah. And that were used and, um, you know, eventually turned into rags. But yeah. the, all of the time and women back then, wanted the beauty that the same beauty in their homes that we want. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, they didn't have tutorials on, on YouTube and things like that. Right. So they, but they did it in their own way. Right. Yeah. I want to, okay. I, I know this is kind of like a departure, but mm -hmm. I am very fascinated with the story of your Nana and who she ended up with and okay. how they started. Can you tell that story of oh, how your Nana yes. ended up with who he who she ended up with? It's a wonderful story. They both went to um, what ended up being the University of New Hampshire. 
Okay. But it was before it was like, you know, something normal school or whatever at that time. But they lived there. They, at they, what time was this? Like what? This what? was okay. It probably would have been, would have been like maybe in the 19 teens. Mm, okay. A little before that, maybe. I don't know. Somewhere around in there. Um, <clears throat> and uh, she dated, his name was Frank Butler. Mm-hmm. And they dated. And, um, uh, she, her roommate was dating a gentleman, a young man, a boy named Ernest. And so they, they, they printed a little banner in their room that says, be earnest and speak frankly, you know, so, which I think <laughs> is so of that era, isn't it? Right. But anyway, yeah. so, um, when they left, when she left school and she went back to her, um, town, which was Franklin, New Hampshire, um, she ended up marrying, uh, another gentleman who was my grandfather, who was um, a very tragic story, very, very tragic story. He uh, became an alcoholic, and I don't want to go into too many of the details because my mother's still living, and I don't want to okay. you know, tell that part of it. But it was very tragic. But he was a wonderful, yeah. sweet man, okay? And in another... If he lived now, his life would have ended up very differently. But I think so. um, yeah. But anyway, so uh, he passed away in tragic circumstances, and so my grandmother was left with three daughters. And um, of course, back then, this was like the 1930s at that time. Um, uh, very, very few prospects, and so she uh, started to. Uh, she started her own, she was a seamstress and she started um, doing fittings and things like that for uh, the local department store. And And the big thing was that she was so famous for fittings that everybody would come from all over the state to have Marion Powers fit her, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, after, you know, all of her girls were grown and married and moved out and um, my mom was the youngest. And like I said, I was about... Um, six or seven, I was actually staying with my grandmother for a week during the summer. And Frank Butler came for a visit. And Mm. uh, they he had his wife had passed away, like about a year prior. And he remembered her and he uh, came looking for her and he found her. And uh, there was always kind of the feeling like he rescued her, you know, because she was doing very well on her own. She was very strong and capable and all those kind of things. But he was such a kind and loving person, you know, and uh, he took such good care of her. Oh my gosh. She was a princess to him. Mm -hmm. And so it was such a beautiful ending to a very hard life. And, you know, he took care of her to the very end, you know, beautifully. So, and they moved, she moved from Franklin at that point to uh, the house that he had built and, yeah, so it's like you don't hear. Uh, it's just like so, uh, a different era. I mean, it literally, yes. is. it's just like mm-hmm. so interesting to hear. Do you think that maybe your connection? Because you said you raised your children mm-hmm. as a single mom, correct? Yeah. yeah. Do you think that maybe you had a special connection with her because you have that shared experience? I do. I think um, she passed away before I married. You know, so I never, I never, uh, knew her as, you know, as a mom myself, but so many times over the years, I've thought back to, uh, what her life was like and kind of connected in my mind, you know, thought, oh, I'm sure she went through these moments, you know, yeah, sure she went through these moments and thinking about it and, and, and how she did it with such grace, you know, Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah, it's the, the I can't even imagine like the minuscule amount of support that a, a single mom would have back in that era, especially if, I mean depression era. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that, and especially that's the the wife of the town drunkard, basically. You know mm. what I mean? So, a lot of judgment back then. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Probably still now, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, one thing that seems to be a consistent theme throughout the throughout the content that you make is gratitude Mm -hmm. that seems to be one of the most important things to you why is gratitude so important to have in your life 
because it transforms everything. If you don't have gratitude, it doesn't matter how easy your life is or how much beauty is around you or anything. If you're not able to look at it with gratitude, then you can't truly appreciate it. If you don't see it as a gift, then there's a certain sort, you know, if you feel, if I feel entitled to have beautiful roses on my table, then I'm not going to appreciate them fully. But when I understand, oh my gosh, these, how many years I went through and maybe could buy one rose every once in a while. And now I can have, you know, a dozen roses on my table every week, you know? So it, yeah, yeah, it's transformative. It, it, what, what there's a saying it turns what you have into enough or something like that so yeah i don't think we recognize sometimes the amount of blessings that we have in our life like there's something that i do some mm-hmm. people kind of giggle at every morning is you know i wake up before the sun mm-hmm. every morning and when the sun hits my face i say thank you to the sun Aww. because not everybody got to see the sun that mm-hmm. day and starting the day that it sounds minuscule to a lot of people but starting the day with thank you has really changed the way that I view each day. Mm-hmm. It's been doesn't it though? It does. Mm-hmm. It does. You yeah. move forward with a with a feeling of enough. You know what I mean? So yeah. Um. So one of the things that I talked to you about when I first asked you to be on the podcast mm-hmm. is I talked about the fact that societally we kind of expect people as they get older to fade away. Mm-hmm. And you have built an Instagram to half a million followers and <laughs> and like show up. Was there a conscious effort there to just continually show up regardless of age? Did you ever feel pressure to kind of fade away? I don't think I'm a fade away kind of person. I I didn't gather that about you, no. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, one of the things I'm grateful for is my own personality, you know, and mm-hmm. I know I'm not for everybody. It's not like I think I'm, everybody's going to love me. I don't, but I can, you know, I was always kind of the odd child, you know, the odd kid and, and that kind of thing, the, the one that couldn't run in junior high or whatever, you know? And so at some point I just realized, well, this is who I am. And once again, that was parenting, I think, that made me come to that conclusion. Like a lot of people say, it's so nice when you get old and you can be to that point. But I truly can say it was parenting that did that for me because I could look at my children and, you know, my my weird chubby little kids, right? And look at them and be like, they are amazing. They Mm -hmm. are incredible. And um, so, and then I think, wow, if I can look at them, then I can look at myself that way too, you know? Yeah. It's It's so interesting how often like we set an example for other people or like guide people in ways that we don't guide ourselves yeah it seems like we i'm very good at giving advice that i don't take (laughs) myself you know aren't we all oh my god why is that why are we so good at giving advice we can't take i don't because it it, because we're we're telling people to do hard things and then when we have to do it ourselves we're like whoa this this is really hard it's very (laughs) difficult it's very it's very difficult (laughs) um so i want to understand your relationship with Milan, is that how you say Milan? Milan. Mil- Milan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, it, I see her pop up in your content. She's my daughter. She's my youngest daughter. Your youngest daughter. Yes. Who's t- the 24 she year old? She's 30. My, she is, um, I have a, uh, my oldest is a daughter. And then I have another daughter. Those are my two birth children, children I gave birth to. Then I have a son who uh, has Down syndrome and autism. He lives in a group home. He's the middle child. Then I have Noah, who's, or then I have Milan, who's 30. And then I have Noah, who's 24. Okay. But what we always say is Milan used to be Noah's big sister, but then they switched. And now Noah is her big brother. So. (laughs) That's so interesting. Because she. These are not all, these are your, these are not all your biological No, the the youngest three. Jake, Noah, and Milan are adopted. Okay. 
tell me about that process. Like, what was the inspiration behind adopting children, especially children with special needs? That's 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 a lot of extra to yeah. take on. What what inspired you to do that? Well, I worked with um, my career. My the first leg of my career when I was a very when like in my twenties was working with um, adults with developmental disabilities mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> worked with a lot of people with various disabilities. But my husband at the time, um, he also worked there and we both um, said we wanted to adopt children with Down syndrome, that we, that was mm. something we wanted to do. And so we had our two daughters and then um, it just felt like it was the right time for various reasons. And so we um so it was kind of funny how it happened with me len because she was the first one we adopted and we had finished our home study we went through the whole home study process which I mean, anybody who's gone through that knows it's an ordeal right yeah. and then um and through the process i had kind of called social workers and kind of tried to get a feel for um you know how, the best places where I might, we might be able to be connected with a child. And, um, so the day that my home study, our home study was completed that day, I was on the phone and I was calling, trying to reconnect with some of those, uh, uh, adoption agency connections. Right. And they all were like, no, there are no babies. There are no babies, you know, there, and, and like literally every place I called and, um, I remember I was sitting at the phone in the kitchen and it was around six o'clock in the, or it wasn't quite that late maybe. But anyways, I turned around and I said to um, my husband, we're not going to get a baby. There just aren't any babies available. And um, as soon as I said that, I got a phone call and I picked it up and it was the same woman that I'd just been done the last phone call from the social worker. And she had gotten off the phone from me and she turned to somebody else in her office and she said, I feel so bad that it's really a nice lady, but you know, I just don't know of any, you know, there just aren't any children with or infants with down syndrome. And then that person said, I just got a call for this infant, you know? And so, and I ended up actually calling uh, Milan's social worker that night and just, and I was, as you can tell, I get excited and I start. I love it talking, right? Yeah. And um, so I did that with this social worker that I'd never met, right? And I was like blathering on and on. And I said, oh, we would just love to make her part of our family. She would complete our family or something. Ridiculously over enthusiastic like that. Mm -hmm. And then I hung up the phone and I was like, oh, I just made such a fool of myself, right? And then we went through the whole process, her birth family, ended up choosing our family to, uh, they entrusted, um, her to us and it was so wonderful. And then one of the last things the social worker said to me was, she said, I knew you were the right family. She said that first conversation I had with you when you were so excited and you said, we just would love to make her part of our family. She said, I knew you were the right family for her then. Oh, so it's like, you just got to be yourself, right? (laughs) What what was it about what what was the thought process in wanting someone wanting to adopt someone with Down syndrome? Like, what was it particularly about that that drew you? I think that this is going to sound kind of weird, but for us, it felt easy. You know, Mm. Down syndrome is a it's and it's not like all people with Down syndrome. There's this fallacy that they're all sweet and loving and all that kind of stuff. Some of the most aggressive and most behavior problems, um, people with the most behavior problems I've ever worked with had Down syndrome. Mm. But it's a, it's um, it's kind of a known quantity. I don't know how to explain it really. And There's- also they're just, I mean, they are beautiful humans. They really yeah. are. Beautiful humans. Anytime I've had interactions with someone with Down syndrome, it's just like a, just like a positivity that exudes from them and a happiness. Um, I realize not everyone's the same, but all of my interactions have been like so wonderful and positive, and they're kind and loving. And it's Mm -hmm. just like it's, I don't know. 
I really she, do. I mean, Milan is such an incredible gift. I mean, it's just my daughter Amelia said at one point, you know, we wouldn't be us without Milan. So, so what has she taught you? I think the thing that she has taught me the most is that, uh, you know, being raised the way I was raised, your productivity, how much work you get done, all those kind of things are absolutely tied to your value, you know, and, mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. And what I've learned with Milan is that you are of, we each are of infinite value, even if we never produce anything that is um, like commercially or um, valuable. You know what I mm -hmm. mean? It, it does not matter because we each have so much value and what we produce is completely separate from that. So when I was talking about uh, the fact that I like cried when I was looking at some of your your content, um, the, the one that struck the hardest for me was the productivity one. I am uh, ooh, uh, I am constantly at this point in my life on the verge of burnout. And, and I'm not the only one. I know there's lots of people out mm -hmm. there who are on the verge of burnout. And I always had this idea and I'm slowly unraveling mm -hmm. the idea that I have to be this massively successful uh, attention grabbing person. Cause I started to reach a lot of those goals and I got there. I was like, I am so supremely unhappy. This is not the stuff that's going to make me feel mm -hmm. whole. Mm -hmm. This is superficial and it's, I don't know where I got these ideas. And that's why I do this podcast, honestly. I quit most of the things that make me money to do the things that don't make me money because it it's something I'm passionate about. Yeah. A lot of something people don't know about me is like in the process of trying to be a full-time content creator, I was I was homeless twice. Oh, I was, you know, it's it and you want to talk about humbling. Yeah. Sleep on a sidewalk oh, and look right. and see how people look at you. Mm -hmm. How do I, how do I, how do I separate from this idea that I need to produce to be worthy of anything? You've talked about it. I, I, I'm not the only one who wants that guidance. I'm sure you have some insight. Like I just, yeah. Oh, honey. Oh, <laughs> I wish so I could tired. give you a hug. <laughs> Me too. <sighs> so what guidance do you have for that? How do how do I get to that mindset where I don't feel like my value is tied to what I can produce? I wish I had an easy answer. I don't. I think this is going to sound so trite. I almost am so embarrassed to say it. But you have to get to the point where you truly love and value yourself. You know, yeah. where you are really valuing yourself separate from the things that you're producing. Like I just look at you and you're so, you know, just speaking with you for the short amount of time, you are so insightful and you're so, you think in such a unique way, hmm. you know, your mind is so, um, I can tell you go down unique paths in your, in your mm -hmm. thought processes and yeah. not everybody is, I mean, that's so rare. Okay. Plus, you're so yeah. handsome and cute, and, you know, <laughs> and you're so warm and engaging. And I can think of so many things and so many ways that you give back to the world that are not the things you produce, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, I think I figured out why I, you and I are connected in such yeah. a way. Um, something that I have always struggled with is my sense of worthiness. Um, I just thought I had to do things in order for people to love me. Yeah. Um, and the reason for that is because of what you just described. I feel, I feel like the way that I view things and the way that I show up in the world is a unique thing, mm -hmm. um, in a lot of ways, much in the way that you show up to the world and why you're having the success that you are with touching so many people. Have you had moments where you just felt like, Man, it would be so much easier if I would just fit in and just oh, yeah. give up all this and be, be what people <laughs> want me to be. I literally can't do it. So, like, I feel so yeah. other 
Yes, yes. Oh, I get it. I so get it. I so get it. I actually had an experience like yesterday where, you know, felt like two of the, the, you know, of course, there's other women my age, you know, on social media and all this other kind of stuff. And two of the the cool women, okay, Mm -hmm. you know, are interacting in a way that is very much leaving me out. Okay. And, and no matter how far I've come, there's still part of me. It's like the junior high girl that couldn't run in gym class or nobody wanted me to sit at their lunch table, you know, or something like that. Those feelings came back, you know? And so what did you say to those feelings when they came back? I laughed. (laughs) You laughed? I made fun of myself in a, in a loving and kind way. You yeah. know what I mean? And um, cause I don't want to make, I don't want to, I don't want to project unkindness onto them, you know, and they weren't being intentionally unkind. I don't want to sound like that, but it was just anyways, but I just, do you had think to laugh maybe the, do you think maybe the unkindness was more here than in their actions? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I think we don't, we all filter our experiences that we experience today through all the years of experiences we've had. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's taken a long time to unravel because I experienced an immense amount of bullying, both physical oh. and emotional for years. Mm-hmm. And it was wild when I started to go to therapy, I started mm-hmm. going to therapy about two years ago. Mm-hmm. So I'm 41 now. So I was 39 when I started going to therapy, mm-hmm. it was wild talking about stuff from middle school as someone who is almost 40 years old. But it's still, it stays with you. Yeah. I'll tell you, I put one on one of my posts uh, and I was talking about it and I, and I mentioned, I think it was one where I talked about being slow and I said, you know, I was always the last one uh, in running in gym class. So the slowest one in gym class, the number of people who commented, I was the last one in gym class too. I was the last one in gym class yeah. too. And I just, I commented back and said, you know, it's, it sticks with you, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I think part of that burnout is this constant need to keep up and be ahead. And like, even with social media, like you have to shift and change with the algorithms. And you, mm-hmm. I feel like I lose, when I focus on those things, I lose my authentic self. You do. And I, I'm I so mean, tired. I'm so tired. Oh, honey, and like, oh. I'm unraveling these, these mindsets yeah. very recently. Mm-hmm. So like, I'm trying to be patient with myself, mm-hmm. but I am horrible at being patient oh. with myself. And I, how, how do I go slow? Okay. Can do you have children? I wonder. No, okay. I don't. Well, think about here's something, and this is not, doesn't originate with me, but for me, like I said, was looking at my children and thinking of myself and thinking, you know, that little chubby girl, Diane, was pretty darn lovable, okay? Looking at myself through the eyes of, like, as an adult looking back. Get, like, a picture of yourself when you're a little child or when you're in middle school or something. Mm. And when you are being unkind to yourself, when you're pressuring yourself, when you're putting all those burdens on yourself, look at that picture of yourself as, you know, 11 year old little guy trying his best, right? Trying Mm -hmm. his best and just be like, would I put this burden on him? No, I would not. Absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. And so think about that because you are, you are the same person that you were when you were 11. You know, I mean, when when you are showing up or finishing everything last and going slow, mm-hmm. um, did you have like that that urge to speed up, or was you are were you just always running your own race? Um, I tried to speed up. Okay, you just I, couldn't. I couldn't. I'm just. <laughs> I am just. Yeah. I. I. Yeah, I just, I just am. I'm just slow. And, but I did try and I did put that pressure on myself. And I can remember years when I was working and I was an administrator for Head Start for many years. And then coming home and supervising my kids' homeschooling and then doing all the cooking and all the cleaning and all that kind of stuff. And it's just, mind numbing, you know, it's Mm -hmm. so hard. Um, 
And uh, I think what I did during that time was I set up pockets of, like when I talk about my sit and stare time. Yes. That was something that started during those years when I was, you know, it was so hard and I had so to So what work. is the sit and stare time? Okay. In case people don't know. <clears throat> okay. Sit and stare is in the morning when I get my coffee, mm-hmm. I find something, I sit down. I nowadays I put my phone down, but before I put my any any work papers anything away, just me and my coffee, and I would sit someplace where I had something that I could look at that was beautiful to me, mm. and I would just sit with my coffee, you know, for ten minutes, five minutes, fifteen minutes, something like that, whatever I could spare that day, and just slow myself down, focus on the coffee, enjoy. Or focus on the beauty and enjoy the coffee. And I mean, now I think they call it grounding probably, you know? Yes. Grounding. So this is right right when you wake up? No, it's because usually my mornings, there's like a period of work. I get up and I do have like a lot of chores and things like that that I do. And then, um, and then somewhere, and when I was working, some mornings I never got that until I was in the car, you know, and Mm. I would, I can remember some mornings having to do so much in the morning, getting in the car, getting drive-through coffee, right? Mm -hmm. And my Tim Hortons hazelnut with two creams, right? And um, I love hazelnut. It's so (laughs) good. it's so good. But, (laughs) and I would pull into the parking lot at work and I would just sit in the car for five minutes, even if I was going to be late going in. I would take that time and I don't know, like I, I remember writing a post for one day, which I remember all I could think of the beauty that I could see was it was raining and just the raindrops coming down on the windshield, you know? Yeah. I think we get so caught up in like the motion of everything that when we take time to just sit and center ourselves, Mm -hmm. there's also some science behind the reason I asked in the morning is I did a lot of research on sleep. Mm -hmm. And one thing I try to not do is for the first 30 minutes, I do not touch my phone. Mm -hmm. I give myself good messages Mm -hmm. and I do something that makes me happy. And the reason is when we wake up, our brain is as close to the, the malleability of children. Oh, wow. So we're in, I think it's called theta. I forget the, mm-hmm. what, what the words were, but essentially we are so susceptible to messaging right as we wake up. So if we set, if we set aside that time to control our own messaging, mm-hmm. we set ourselves up for more success throughout the day. That makes and so much sense. Mm-hmm. I know, and I know, I'll tell you, that resonates with me and I appreciate you sharing that because on the mornings when I do a lot in my Instagram stories usually. And I start like almost as soon as I wake up, I post something, you know, Mm -hmm. but those mornings when I wake up a little early and I have time to just, I don't feel like, I feel like I have time before I need to post that first post. It helps me a lot. It helps me to not feel tied to my phone. I hate feeling tied to my phone. So, yeah. yeah. And you take, uh, you you don't use your phone the entire weekend, or is it just for like you take social media breaks every weekend? Every right? weekend, without fail. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How long I'm are you not, away? I'm not 100 for... good at it. Okay, no I, one I'm is. Not gonna, yeah, I'm not gonna. <laughs> I'm not gonna spread this image like I just do not pick up my phone. I do, and I do scroll. Okay, I do mm-hmm. get into a scrolling thing, and I do occasionally leave a comment or two. Have been known, but um, generally, Are people are like, oh, oh, "You're supposed to be." <laughs> it's so funny because now I feel so visible. It's like you know, people, yeah. people will actually comment. They'll be like, "Oh, Nano, why are you on?" <laughs> yeah, I actually had someone on my podcast uh, a couple months ago who gave up social media for Lent, and I released the episode while she was taking her social media break, and she was just like, "I, I." I wanted to see it and she, she did her best. Yeah. She did her best. Yeah. But I think just the, and for me, the idea of not having to put content up is helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So something you said earlier Mm -hmm. that definitely was a thought in my brain, and I hope you don't take this as an attack because it's not, it's just a natural (laughs) thought process Uh because I deal with some interesting personalities in my life. Mm -hmm. 
no one is this nice. Not one person on earth is this nice. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely didn't think you had like a, this is your like show house. Like that's definitely not a thought that I had. Mm-hmm. Do, do you, how do you deal with, with, uh, you, do you deal with people being like super resistant to how like sweet you are all the time? Like, I do. People sometimes will say, you know, that's one of the things people, you know, when you talk about people making fun of me or whatever, or excluding mm-hmm. me, that's one of the things, you know? Yeah. So, um, what do you say to those people? Or, I mean, maybe you don't say anything at all, but I like, don't really, I mean, what can you say? You know, what, what, what response is there to that? I mean, sometimes I just will say, well, I'm just doing my best, you know, or something like that, you mm-hmm. know, or we're all just doing our best or that kind of thing. But, um, I mean, I have my moments. You ask my children. <laughs> yeah. I have my moments, but I think my kids are all so wonderful. I mean, everybody says that, but, you know, they're just, when I am in the middle of those moments, like if I'm upset about something, then um, they'll usually just start like joking with me. And they'll mm-hmm. they'll send, start sending each other memes like, mom's big mad and all this other kind of stuff, you know, but yeah. I, I will tell you, I, my, my OGs who've been watching my stories for ages will know that I have let forth with a rant or two. <gasps> no, yeah, I have get out. I, I have, I have, maybe <laughs> I'll send you, maybe I'll send you my, uh, my, uh, Oh my God. So embarrassing. But I was, uh, there was, uh, I'm trying to think what it was. But there was a thing about, uh, like, entitlement and white supremacy and that kind of thing. And there was – it was around the time of um, the the child, actually, practically, that was – went and got a gun and shot all the people at the um, – at the – at that protest. What's his name? Kyle Rittenhouse. Oh, yes. Uh, It was dreadful. And, and, uh, you know, the – people defending him and that kind of thing. And I just got really upset. And I remember I was washing Milen has uh, alopecia, right? So she has a wig. And so I was washing her wig and I, I thought, well, I'm just going to film this while I'm washing her wig because it, you know, whatever. So I did that. Well, I started talking about it and I got so upset, you know, yeah. and I was just like, you know, you know, I'm not that person. If you, you know, if you're going to post that kind of stuff, comments on my thing, then, you know, just leave. We'll both be happier, you know? So do you think that yeah. maybe, do you think that maybe, so like what my brain goes is you think about the era that you emulate. Mm-hmm. It is an era that was very unkind to a lot of people, yes. including women, including mm-hmm. people of color. People with disabilities. People with disabilities. Like mm-hmm. it was just like a. I mean, it, we still have these struggles now, but it was mm-hmm. definitely more prominent, more yeah. blatant mm-hmm. back then. Why are you so passionate about these causes like Black Lives Matter and 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 supporting people of color and people with disabilities? Like, what inspires you to to display those things so that people see what you're about. Cause it's a risk when you oh, post yeah. that stuff, you know, you could get backlash for it, but you oh, still I do. do it. I've, I've gotten, uh, I, I posted a post that was, you know, I had gotten a bunch of new followers and I did a post where I'm like, Hey, I love all you guys. Great. Then getting all these new followers, but you got to understand this about me. Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm not, you know, um, bigoted. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's the, was the most accurate word and to use. That I, speaking of not wanting to be on your phone, I was on my phone for like 48 hours nonstop because of the hate that I was getting and the nastiness mm-hmm. and everything like that. And some people were like, oh, you should leave that up because then other people will come on and then you get all this engagement and it's great for your numbers and all this. And I'm like, no, that is not absolutely not going to be on my page yeah. because I was just like, it's not, um, I want people to feel safe when they come to my page. I want them, yeah. I want them to feel like I can scroll through the comments in Diane's, you know, thing and 
I'm not going to get hit with some kind of nastiness. So, and I totally yeah. didn't answer your question because I got rambling and I, it's okay. It's <laughs> I can, the reason I ask is because I can tell it's something you're obviously passionate mm -hmm. about. Why? Well, I will tell you this, my parents, one thing that they did very right was they were in the sixties. They were very outspoken for civil rights and that kind of thing. We were raised that way. You know mm. what I mean? And, um, yeah, so that was the start of it. And then I think, uh, you know, Noah is black. My son, my youngest son is black. And when I had, and I, so I always felt that way, but when I had, I, when I had my adopted, my black children, I could see the difference in the way they were treated from my white children. Okay. Yes. And there was absolutely no difference whatsoever. You know, they were dressed the same. They were, They're you know, humans. had the same manners. They had the same whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, the difference was breathtaking. And so yeah. that's one thing I don't think people realize is when you talk about uh, um, microaggressions and things like that, children, black children in this country are assaulted with yes. those from the moment that they show their face in public and they're so young that they don't understand they they think that's normal it's mm -hmm. not normal it's violence. And they probably in, internalize a lot of self-loathing oh, yeah. because yeah. of the way they were treated mm -hmm. it's, yeah. it's 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 uh, beyond comprehension i mean i had there was one situation where Noah was at preschool next to his little best friend, Charles, okay, so who was white, little blonde boy, okay, and I was standing back, you know, just kind of observing, and um, I actually worked for Head Start at the time. I was, uh, it was at Head Start, and um, I was an administrator, so I was in the classroom, and somebody came, one of the teachers came up to the table with Charles and Noah, said something to them. They both reacted the exact same way. Neither one of them looked at the teacher or the uh, staff person um, and didn't interact with them in any way. Okay. So they went to Noah and reprimanded him. Mm. Look at me when I speak to you kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. And then they went to Charles and they got down on his eye level, put their arm around the back of the chair and are like, What's the matter? You know, so I went to them. Okay, I'm seething, literally seething. Yeah. Okay. And um, I went to the staff person. I said, I just want to, I want to talk to you about this. I want, I want to understand your thought process. Okay. That's good that you like did that instead of just immediately attacking because it's allowing them to kind of explain themselves. Yes. And then they get themselves into, then they, they, well, what happened was that she goes, well, I can tell the attitude. I can tell the attitude because I could look at Noah and I could tell he was just being moody and he was not respecting me. Okay. And, and then, uh, but Charles, I could tell he was just feeling shy and I'm like, okay, what, tell me what in their behavior told you that, you know? And so we went down to the end of it and they could not explain why. Okay. They don't, they're not grasping their own bias yeah. because they've never had a chance. They've never had someone challenge them. I'm guessing. Right. right. Yeah. So in those experiences, I mean, I'm not going to bore you with no. going down the list of all of them, but those, that's one incident of thousands. So, yeah. and so then when, you know, things happened with Trayvon Martin and, mm. um, I had a panic a total panic within me because I was afraid that was going to happen to him, you know? Yeah. And, um, he, thankfully he had a wonderful, we had a family friend who was also his barber, Maurice, um, wonderful black gentleman. I've been so blessed with so many black, uh, folks that have so graciously taken me under their wing there's and just and there's some things that you're not going to be white lady, you know. Yeah, there's things that you're not going to be able to teach, mm -hmm. you know, black, your black children. No, that, no, because there's cultural things that you will never experience. Mm -hmm. And there's things that, as a parent, I won't even know. I 
did not have a clue as to how to address them, but they helped me. But Maurice gave him the talk, told him, you know, make sure you've got your ID, blah, 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 and everything. And he, you know, did that. Well, I can remember once uh, Noah's dad came over to pick him up and take him out somewhere. And as they were getting ready to leave, I said, Noah, do you have your ID? And he was like, no, it's up in my room. I don't know. You know how he was like 14 or so at the time. Right. So, yeah. um, uh, and I like, well, you cannot leave the house without your ID. You need to go upstairs. You need to find it. And you need to get it. And he went up and he was, you know, grouching and everything. And, uh, his dad looked at me and his dad was very understanding and supportive of that whole thing. Very much so. But I said, I just kind of blurted out. This is never going to end because he's never going to stop being black, you know? Yep. And yeah. So. I think it just takes people like I told a story uh, and I on TikTok and I ended up getting a lot of uh, duets from black folk, which as Mm -hmm. a white person, when you make a content about race and you get a bunch of duets from black folk, you're not sure how that's going to go for you. Yeah. (laughs) But. But I had talked about, I think it really just, you just have to pay attention. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's constant talk about white privilege. Mm -hmm. um, And it's taken as something that you are supposed to like, well, if I, I don't have, I have my own problems, right? And they Mm -hmm. make it about that. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I talk to someone who is, who is speaking like that, I tell them this story. Mm -hmm. I was in New Orleans Mm -hmm. and I was visiting my friend, Chris, who's black. And I couldn't park at his place. Mm-hmm. And so he had me go park in a parking lot. And then he came and picked me up. And then we were going to go out in the the probably French Quarter area. Mm-hmm. When I get into his car, he reaches into his glove box and he grabs his registration, puts it in his visor, takes his wallet out, takes his ID, mm-hmm. puts it in his visor. And I look at him and I'm like, what are you doing? And he was mm-hmm. like, if I get pulled over, I don't want to have to reach for anything. And the fact that I have never thought about that is my privilege. It doesn't mean I don't have real problems. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that my problems aren't valid. It doesn't even mean that the cops might not harass you. 100%. The fact that I hadn't thought about that is an example of my privilege. Mm -hmm. The world is just, it's just straight up people are treated differently Mm -hmm. based on the color of their skin. Absolutely. And not just here. Yeah. It's in a lot of places. Yeah. So it just takes time to like take a step back, mm-hmm. look at what what reality is and think of someone other than yourself and mm-hmm. sit and educate yourself. There, You're going to have uncomfortable conversations. Absolutely. That's one of the reasons I do that on this podcast. Mm-hmm. I have very uncomfortable conversations, mm-hmm. but that's how you grow. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. how you become a better person. That's how you have more understanding and, and yeah. love for everyone that's Absolutely. around you. Absolutely. Yeah. And it shows for, res- in the end, it shows respect for the person. Because if you care enough to have a difficult conversation instead of just discounting them, that yeah. it says, I value you. Yeah. I mean, what do, what do you think about, I mean, do you witness much of like the back and forth social media bickering stuff as someone who uses social media or do you kind of steer <clears throat> clear of that? I steer clear of it very much so. Yeah. Because I tell you, I used to, you know, like, here, this is my arrogance, okay? Back when uh, the kids were young and I had this revelation, like, oh, my God, it's so different. You know, raising black children is so different than raising white children because of the way they're perceived. I know I'm going to solve all the world's problems because I'll get out there as a white lady and I'll tell all my white friends this is the truth. And they're all just going to believe me and go, wow, Diane, that's great. You know, thank you for enlightening me. <laughs> well, of course. No didn't work out that way. <laughs> no. no. But I've learned that, you know, there people are so it's sad, but for the most part people at this point, they're so entrenched in their mindset that arguing yeah. with them just makes them more entrenched. So I just don't There the, it used to be that ideas are ideas, but now ideas are identities. Yes. So when you attack the idea, you're attacking what they feel is Yes, you're so Mm -hmm. smart. That is so true. I've had so I have been having uncomfortable conversations for the better part of 15 years. (laughs) And especially as a white dude navigating these spaces like and that was that was where when we were talking about earlier about not fitting in. Mm-hmm. I can exist in LGBT spaces. I can Mm -hmm. exist in black spaces. I can Mm -hmm. exist in space. I'll never be let in, though. 
because I'm not a part of that community. Mm-hmm. And then I also wasn't connecting with a lot of the small mindsets that I was finding with people who were like me. Mm-hmm. So I always thought, hey, I should try to like figure out a way to fit into these spaces. But my therapist was like, hey, what about just being yourself and attracting the people with that mindset? It is an opportunity to mm-hmm. be a thought leader. Mm-hmm. Be the be the flower, not the bee. Oh, you are. That is wonderful. Yeah. And you are such a flower. Yes. I've <laughs> always wanted to be a flower. You are one. You are. <laughs> okay. I have a few questions from okay. uh, my Patreon people. If you're down okay. to answer a couple of questions, sure. we're almost done. I, I don't know how much, t- I don't want to take too much of your time. Um, so if you ever want to ask questions to people who are on the podcast, patreon.com slash unfiltered friends. Both questions are from the same person, Annika. Um, the first question is, where do you get all of your knowledge of vintage from? Like you have so many things that I have never even heard of. <laughs> where, where, where do you uh, get your knowledge? Years. It's just years and years. And I love domestic history. Love domestic history. I mean, there's vast portions of, of vintage vintagealia that I know nothing about, but household goods and clothing, I'm pretty well set on. And I, it's just years of accumulated knowledge. And also I, I love, um, like doing weird research. So like my current research project, this is embarrassing is, um, going back and looking at all the research and trying not research, but the primary source things to find out what were the actual items that were in a woman's closet. Like how many dresses did she have? How many corsets did she have? How many, whatever, you know? And so it fascinates me. So where do you go? If someone's looking to do what you do and like find that information, where are the places that you would direct them to go look up stuff like that? Um, well, I, a lot of it you can do just through like primary, uh, materials, which so much is available online now, but there's also like books like, um, I have like sets of what are we're called homekeeping encyclopedias. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so like in there, they'll say, you know, as you're getting married and you're setting up your trousseau, this is what you should ideally plan, you know? Yeah. And then there also were a lot of um, like sewing books and things like that, that would outline ideal wardrobe. So you have like the ideal wardrobe and then there were, you know, like, um, in the depression when they did like a lot of the oral histories and things like that, they, the government sent out for the WPA. One of the things they did was record like oral histories and things like that. In amongst those things, there's things people talking about their wardrobe. There's also, um, there was in some of the States, they actually did go and ask farm women all of to enumerate all of their clothing items that they have. So you huh. have the ideal and then you have the reality, you know, and uh, it was very, it's so interesting. So, so many surprising things that you find. There's out. a lot of history. There is, um, there's a place, uh, in Georgia mm-hmm. called, uh, Mary Max tea room. Mm-hmm. And I did a food travel series where I went to a bunch of different places and like mm-hmm. learned, like I ate the food, got in the kitchen, learned how mm-hmm. they make it, but also oh, learned wow. the history. Now I don't, I haven't researched this. So if it's inaccurate, mm-hmm. this is just what I was told. But apparently the reason that you would put tea room at the end of a business's name is mm-hmm. because, um, so Mary Max was, was female owned, mm-hmm. um, and people would not frequent businesses that were owned by women. But if it put tea room on that business, mm-hmm. uh, it was denoted that that woman was the widow of a veteran of war oh, and people wow. will be more likely to frequent that business. Someone correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what I was told by the people who, who were there. So it's interesting. I wouldn't like, be you, surprised at all because there yeah. was so much, so much layering in the language and the, and the sort of messaging that was used. Yeah. Um, back then yeah and they had the best cinnamon rolls and they'd make them from scratch oh i want to go back it's known (laughs) as george's living room apparently (laughs) um uh one more question this is from hallie what are your like favorite vintage items that you have like things that you have around your house that you Mm -hmm. use frequently or that you love the most okay i think one of my favorite things is my little cow creamer 
Yes. I love so that. cute. <laughs> I love that. My kids used to call it the throw up cow and they it would really never does. use it. <laughs> I saw that. Oh, that's my immediate thought. But yes. yes. Yeah. Somebody commented and said, that's probably why you still have it, you know, because kids wouldn't use it. So yeah, that and I have some corselets, okay, which are women's foundation garments that are like what we would sort of think is like a bra and a uh, girdle together, like one okay. piece. So I have a lot of those, none of which are only one of which fits me actually, but I <laughs> love them because they are such feats of engineering, you know? Yeah. And so that's my dream someday to have a 1930s corselet in my size. Okay. If any They're of you know how big. to how to make that happen. We're going to, we're going to, I'm going to put all the, what I call my audience, the Twirdos. Okay. Because uh, <laughs> a lot of us started on Twitch together. So it's Twitch and Weirdo put together. Our credo <laughs> is you can be exactly who you are as long as you're respectful. That, love that. Oh, I love that. Yeah. That's you awesome. could be a Twirdo if you like. I'll be, I would, I would be so honored. Yes. I would be so honored. Yes. Yes. So if people um, are inspired by you and would like to reach out to you, where's the best place for them to do that? Um, I really, really work hard at keeping up on my Instagram messages. Mm -hmm. um, and I also had just started having an email that is your chubby vintage Nana at gmail.com. Like just an email that's devoted to my social media stuff. So And the Instagram is, is Schiffer Diane. Schiffer Diane. And then Schiffer on Diane. TikTok, I'm also... Schiffer Diane, but I'm, you know how on TikTok you can have the two different things. So yeah. Schiffer Diane and your chubby vintage Nana. Cool. Well, <laughs> thank you so much for your time. You guys don't understand. It took a little bit of effort to get all of this set up initially, but we got there and I'm so glad that we he did. Is so is I have to tell you guys probably already know this. I just met him, but what a sweet and tolerant and patient fellow he is mm. he it's been i feel like i've met a new friend yeah i hope so i hope we stay friends after this i hope we absolutely will all right well thank you for being on unfiltered friends well thank you for having me honey <laughs>